0: I think I've got a 100% strike rate of when you ask a Chinese tourist and you say, oh, what are you doing in North Korea? What's brought you here? What do you think they say? Like, why do they go to North Korea?
1: I have no idea, actually.
0: So 100% of Chinese that I've asked over there say, it's what China used to look like.
1: James Skellen's Asia journey started when his Melbourne school made Mandarin studies compulsory for the first four years of high school. James and I first crossed paths via our China connection. But what intrigued me about his Asia journey was when I found out that he had led guided tours to North Korea, which later inspired him to create a photo book documenting the hotels in the country's capital city. James is currently the director of programs at Asia Society and is the driving force behind the organization's range of content that spans across Asia. In this conversation, we traverse across Asia, we talk about the juxtaposition of China's rapid development versus its enduring cultural identity, I discover James's love for Japanese surf rock, and we dive behind the scenes into his time in North Korea, including the making of his book, Hotels of Pyongyang. Welcome to Cloud Asia where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by picking a food, song, show, and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Doo, and here is James Scullin. Welcome to Clout Asia.
0: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
1: For those of you listening, we actually met, if I recall correctly, because you had hosted your own podcast with ACBC and Mm. is quite heavily involved in the Australia-China space. And now you are Programs Director at Asia Society and have also published an incredibly fascinating book about hotels in North Korea. So there's a lot to talk about. Maybe we'll start from the start, which is China. How did China become a part of your journey?
0: So at my high school, we had to study Chinese from year seven until year 10. So even if you preferred to play football or preferred to play music, you had to study Chinese. I quite enjoyed it. I don't think I was ever that good at it, but I just did enjoy it more than other subjects.
1: I find it fascinating that your school, your high school, made it compulsory for, what's that, four years for everyone to study Chinese.
0: You do hear a lot about problems with Chinese language learning in schools and, Mm -hmm. you know, that a lot of non-Chinese families feel deterred to study Chinese because there's this thought that people from Hong Kong backgrounds or Cantonese backgrounds choose to study Chinese and they get really great marks, and the non Chinese students don't do too well. And that was never my experience because mm. when I did year 12, you got marked up for doing languages. So, as I said, look, I mean, I was okay, I was never great, but the scaling helped me out. I also had an opportunity to go there in year nine to Beijing and Shanghai and a few yeah. regions areas. And I was probably 15 or something. And now, thinking about it, 1999 in China, was kind of Um, mid-development, but it was definitely much more of a drastic difference to the West maybe than it is now, or or maybe just a very different way. I think that was just an amazing experience for me. And I think from that point on, I just kept on with language as like the main fulcrum to my relationship with China. And then I think from that, I got more interested in the history of the country and assets. You go down like different rabbit holes at different points in Chinese history. And then I guess the relevance to Australia. I studied German as well. It kind of dawned on me in my mid-20s or so that if you're comparing the relevance to Australia between Germany and China, China's definitely the more useful language and most relevant yeah. at the moment, at least anyway.
1: And for your movie for today, you have picked early movies by Zhang Yimou. Did that come about from your high school language studies or later?
0: Yeah, I think we did watch a few at school. So I think we probably watched Quadra, which is to live, and there was a uh, not one less as well. Yeah. But I think why I make a distinction between the early ones, the ones in the eighties and nineties, raise the red lanterns, probably the big mm. one is that I just feel like there's something so Chinese about them. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't take place in any other country. And I think when I've spent time in China, as much as it's kind of developed and, you know, I haven't been there in four years, you had the good fortune to just recently go there. Yes, Like every time I'm in China, it's always changing. Restaurants are always disappearing. Your favourite spot's are always disappearing and you're yes. trying to relocate what used to be there. And I think yes. particularly for a lot of that ancient stuff that China is so famous for um, mm. and for, you're always going down like a hutong in Beijing or you're going to an old lake or you're going to an old mountain to get that feeling of how old the country is. And I feel mm. like movies of Zhang Yimou, whether they're about the Cultural Revolution or whether they're about the 80s period, I just feel like they're so quintessentially Chinese. Obviously, China's in a different phase now, but I just feel when China was developing, I do feel like there's something special about that period. And I think it's captured really well in those movies. And honorable mention also goes to The Last Emperor, also kind of late 80s, but it's by an Italian director, Bernardo Bertolucci, And the amazing thing about that is that an Italian director was able to film a film about China in the Forbidden City. Imagine that happening now. There's no chance a Western European director would have the right to film such a pivotal movie about China's last emperor in the Forbidden City. So I feel like there's interesting artifacts from like the 80s and 90s when I guess China was open to an extent that probably isn't now where there were weird, interesting things created.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I find that identity, that Chinese kind of core identity, it sounds a little bit stereotypical to say, oh, lanterns, China. But I find at least in the last 20 years or the last 15 years, there's been so much of this aspiration towards the West, like Western culture, movies, fashion, whatever that might be. And sometimes Mm. I just think, oh, I'd love to see more of that traditional Mm. identity come out and to see the younger generation wanting to understand Mm. their own heritage and their roots as well.
0: Yeah. And I think when you talk about hutongs, there's a Western idealistic view of a hutong. And I think when you speak to locals who actually live in hutongs and upgrade to apartments, the reason they do so (laughs) is because, hutongs aren't the best place to live really maybe it's romantic for westerners like me i guess it's about how does China strike that balance between retaining those things and having places of comfort that are modern that you know you kind of want to live in
1: yes i stayed in a lane house because again i was romanticizing the idea of living in a lane house and i always wanted to in shanghai and i didn't and it was terrible there was yeah. no sound insulation. It was tiny. There was terrible water pressure. Oh, There's a reason yeah. why our people want to live in more established places. <laughs> Did you spend some time living in China or just travel? Yeah,
0: I lived there, I think, between 2012 and 2014. I studied environmental policy at Mm -hmm. university and I was finishing my studies in Berlin, living over there. And and then I um, moved to Beijing because I wanted to combine that climate career with a China career. So I was working Mm -hmm. for an environmental consultancy while I was over there and (laughs) When I worked for the Australia-China Business Council, I did have the ability to go there a few times a year for work as well.
1: And if I recall correctly, when we were chatting earlier, was that when you started to do tours in North Korea?
0: I went on a tour to North Korea just for a holiday and I was living in Germany at the time. And then when I moved to China, I basically called up the tour company, which was One English guy, pretty much, based in London, who worked with the North Korean travel provider called the Korea International Travel Company, the KRTC. I said, look, I'm living in Beijing now. I'm interested in if you need someone to help you with these tours. I used to run tours in Berlin, like city tours, talking Uh about the history of the city and yeah, he did need someone. And so the brief was essentially they needed Western people to lead tours of 15 to 20 people over to Pyongyang. When you go to Pyongyang, you're met by two guides from that same company, and they're mm-hmm. with you the entire time. Yeah. So people like to say, oh, you're with minders the whole time. And I guess that's true. They are tour guides. A lot of Soviet and communist countries used to do the same, um yes. they're not quite open. You meet these tour guides. Um, they're with you the whole time. My role was to be there to make sure no one did anything stupid. So, uh-huh. you, so you brief people about you know what you shouldn't take photos of, what you shouldn't talk about, but you can talk about a whole range of topics, but I never had any issues when I was leading the tours. But mm. I think um, you do just need to kind of remind people from time to time where they are, because when you're over there, you mm-hmm. don't have perception. You don't have ATMs. There's no internet. You're off grid. So you do need to just not do anything that might offend the country at all. Yeah, Obviously some sensitive points.
1: For sure. And were you leading Western or English speaking tourists?
0: Yeah, mainly Westerners, mainly okay. guides, 80 or 90% of them were men, generally. A lot of Europeans, a lot of people from East Germany, interestingly, because obviously East Germany used to have its own social and communist past. Mm-hmm. And for them, it's a really interesting journey going to a country that still has that system. But then there'd be just curious Canadian, American, English, people like me that Just feel North Korea is an interesting place that's off-grid, it's different, and I mean, there's a lot of things to say about the country, but it is definitely a very kind of unique experience where you are going to somewhere unquestionably unique.
1: Yeah. Were there any people from other Asian countries in the region that would travel there?
0: Well, it kind of ebbed and flowed. There was a period when I was traveling there where there were no Chinese. There were some diplomatic issues between China and North Korea around 2015, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I think with Kim Jong-un, the relationship got a little warmer. Mm. I think there's a stat that maybe there were 3,000 Westerners that would go each year compared to 100,000 Chinese tourists. So there's a lot of Chinese tourists that you see over there. I think I've got a 100% strike rate of when you ask a Chinese tourist and you say, oh, what are you doing in North Korea? What's brought you here? What do you think they say? Like, why do they go to North Korea?
1: I, I have no idea, actually.
0: So they all say 100% of Chinese that I've asked over there say it's what China used to look like. So you have a lot of old Chinese tourists, a lot of people from all areas of China. Yes. So I think it, there is a very cultural revolution era to North Korea. You've got propaganda posters everywhere. You've got no advertising. Yes. Everything's very state run. And I think there's some form of nostalgia that Chinese people feel about yes. going to there. It's a kind of weird, nostalgic pilgrimage for a lot of Chinese, which is kind yeah. of interesting to talk to them about when you bump into them when you're over there.
1: Very interesting. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, somewhat related of just how fast the rate of change happens in China, right? The same restaurants, your homes, where you grew up, it's completely different. I come back home after 20 years and literally nothing Mm. has changed. Mm. Same two petrol stations, same pizza shop on the corner. I can see that sense of wanting to reminisce of a certain part of memory and to be able to see that is quite significant.
0: Yeah, I think there's a theory that potentially North Korean people seeing Chinese people in North Korea is a threat to the system in a way because for Westerners, Westerners come with cameras and all these SLR video cameras and all these yes. kind of technologies that don't exist in North Korea. But I think for Chinese to come over with that same advanced technology, and for North Koreans to feel, oh, well, yes. hey, in the 70s, we were on equal footing. Yeah. And now when we see Chinese people in our country, they're so much more advanced than we are. Like, what have they done in their system that, that we haven't done or that our government hasn't done to us? Yes. So when you're over there, you're constantly trying to imagine what is all this, what's going on in North Koreans' mind? Because yes. encountering with Chinese people that were on a kind of similar level with them, developmental-wise, would be an interesting thing to consider, maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, on your tours, I'm imagining there's some interesting dishes that you can try. You have chosen Pyongyang cold noodles. Is that something that you had had an amazing uh, experience whilst you were doing a tour in North Korea?
0: I should preface it with talking about food in North Korea is obviously a loaded topic for obvious reasons. And when you're a foreigner there, you're on a particular route of the country that's obviously blinded by other things Mm. in the country. There's a lot of hardship for North Korean people, Mm. especially around food and issues like that. But it's Korean food. Mm. So there is quite a lot of similarities. There's barbecue, there's bibimbap. But I think one of the things that Pyongyang's and North Korea is very proud of is the Pyongyang cold noodles. So it's this dish that's served in this metal tray and the tray is chilled Mm -hmm. and it's buckwheat noodles in kind of like a cold broth with beef slices. It's essentially uh, liang in Chinese and the Korean word is very similar to that. And there's this huge restaurant called the Kru restaurant on the Taedong River in Pyongyang. There's this huge palace dedicated to this dish, Pyongyang cold noodles. Last time I was there in 2019, I asked to go there and we went there. And there was actually a military parade happening in town when we were there. As me and my guides were walking into the restaurant, there were literally thousands of soldiers just eaten there and it's a really strange experience when you're the only different-looking person around. Yes. It's a really strange feeling to have so many people staring at you. But, yeah, the noodles are great. I think South Korea has adopted them as well. Mm. A song about Pyongyang cold noodles that they often kind of sing in karaoke in North Korea as well. Yeah. But, yeah, it's very clean. It's very refreshing. Mm-hmm. It's a whole technique of how you add mustard and vinegar to it and you cut them up. And when you're over there, the guides show you the proper way to eat it. Mm.
1: Do they cut it using scissors out of curiosity?
0: No, chopsticks. So that's where you need a little bit of instruction. Um, Interesting. But because, but because it's Korea, it's steel chopsticks. So yes. you can get a bit of purchase on it. I always probably need to cut up for me because I don't really have the, the technique. No, okay. well, talking
1: from experience, in South Korea the last time that I had it and also mm-hmm. at a Korean restaurant in Sydney in Strathfield, you can get a variation of these cold noodles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they give you a pair of scissors, and mm-hmm. which is much easier than navigating or cutting using chopsticks. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So maybe we can go a little bit outside of China and Korea just for a sec because you're at Asia Society now and you look at a lot of other countries in Asia. What's been happening in the rest of the Asia region? How are you using some of the skills and experiences from your time in China and also in North Korea in what you're doing as Programs Director?
0: Yeah. So I guess working in someone like the Asia Society, a lot of it made me realize that my career had been so China-centric. And look, China is a hundred countries in one. So there's a fair reason to have a China-centric Career, but I think particularly now with so much talk around like diversification and emerging markets in Southeast, mm. in particular, I've been able to rediscover that yearning to learn about other countries. I haven't really had much exposure to. If I could do it all again and spend the majority of my time traveling, I would love to do a week in each of the ASEAN countries. Just because yeah. I feel there's so much to learn about how different and unique they are. And that's something that I feel like I have the privilege to catch up on that professionally. Um, I just feel like that's such a dynamic place that it's just going to change so much in the next 10 years, similar to how China has changed in the last 20 years.
1: And then looking at the rest of Asia, you've got South Korea, Japan. They're the bigger ones. I always find Japan to be interesting geographically as it sits alongside China and Korea as well. It might be a good time to talk about your music nomination. Who have you picked for us today? I forgot how this
0: came to me, but there's this Japanese guitarist called Takeshi Tarachi. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but he's a Japanese surf rock guitarist. So he has a bunch of different bands that he plays with. And I think he is from the 70s. It's this really aggressive type of guitar playing. I guess if you think of a Quentin Tarantino movie that has a lot of surf rock in it, it's like that, but it has this... Japanese precision to it, where I believe there's also, I mean, I can't even recognize it myself, but there's Japanese folk songs that are done in this really fast, frenetic kind of way. And I just feel Japan is so heavily influenced by the US and the West But I think Japan has its best unique take on that type of music. I do feel Japan has this really innovative music scene and Takeshi Tarachi is a real go-to for me.
1: Let's have a quick listen. a good point. Japanese music, like you say, it takes so many of these other elements, often US influenced, but in some crazy way, innovative way, it's made sure that it's inherently very Japanese. And I think of Japanese city pop, for example, it has real strong Western influences, But yet it is still so Japanese at its core and they managed to do that so well.
0: Yeah. One of the best places I've been in Tokyo is the Beatles Bar. It's this bar just dedicated to the Beatles and they have Beatles cover bands there. I went and saw one of these Beatles cover bands there and it was so good. It just really did feel like seeing the Beatles live. But when the band, these four Japanese guys, when they started talking to the crowd, they couldn't even speak English. So they could perfectly mimic the tone and the harmonies and the lyrics of the Beatles, but they actually couldn't speak English themselves. That's a great place. It's very weird, but it's heaps of fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. And to round out our conversation, I do want to talk a little bit about your book, Hotels of Pyongyang. How did you even think about doing something like this?
0: I think when you're in North Korea, it's very controlled. You're on the bus a lot and you're driving around Pyongyang. And when I was spending a lot of time there, there was one or two hotels that foreigners would stay at. Mm. So you'd drive around on the bus and you'd see these towers in the skyline. And I'd ask the guards, oh, what's that tower? And they say, oh, that's like an old hotel no one really stays there anymore. Or there was like another old hotel that no one ever really stayed at. Because in the days of the Soviet Union, there used to be a lot of tourism between those countries who were friends with each other. So Russians and Bulgarians and Croatians would visit North Korea more frequently than they do now. And because everything's so state run in North Korea, these architectural artifacts that are kept in such great condition, because it's probably a downside of the system that even a hotel that doesn't have any tourists in it will most likely be fully staffed because people need to work in that right. country, they need to have something to do. It's one of the absurd parts of North Korea, but I wanted to have a look at what do those hotels look like, these hotels mm-hmm. seventy, with this real brutalist architecture, these huge lobbies, you know, built out of marble, they have these real epic banquet halls. And so the idea was to kind of create a book that documented those and I guess the way I pitched it to like the North Korean contacts was that, I mean, the same way I pitched it to Western people, I just wanted to create a book that shared that this thing existed. And I think it's something that to Western eyes looks very strange, but it's very vibrant. There's lots of colors, symmetry. People often talk about it There's a Wes Anderson feel to it. Yes. I mean, there was this one banquet hall we went into that had all these like pink tablecloths. And then this girl walks in, who's a waitress at that restaurant. She's wearing the same pink color blazer. Oh, okay, you obviously have to stand in the middle of this photo. I just think that's an interesting part of North Korea because it is very grey, it is very drab, it's a very Soviet authoritarian place. But in these hotels, there is this kind of weird creativity where, in a way, it's very Korean. There's a fine eye on design. It's very colorful. It's it's all. Mm. Mad- it's very thoughtful. So the idea for the book was just to be able to document that these places existed. We got to go over, I got a photographer and we went over in 2019 um, and we had four days to shoot everything, which was probably in hindsight, a short, very short time. Wow. I think there's 11 hotels that foreigners can stay at in pune mm. got to document each of those and uh, make it into a book that I was able to release and self-publish during lockdown. It was just really great being able to fulfill that original idea of just wanting to make use of this unique experience Mm -hmm. of going to a place like North Korea and just being able to finish that experience with a final thing, which turned out to be the book.
1: For sure. And how is it connected to your nomination for a person? Oh, so,
0: my person is Ri So Hyung. So, that's also probably not the best pronunciation, but she's one of the two Korea International Travel Company guides we had during our visit to North Korea for the book. And these people are really a window into North Korea. And mm. they work for a state run organization. And there's certainly a script that when you're on a tour, they read to you. When you visit this monument, they mm. say. Something. When you visit this museum, they say this thing. But you do have a lot of downtime with them where you get to, I mean, you can talk about Kim Jong-un, you can talk about nuclear weapons. But look, when you talk about those things, you only get so far. But I think when you engage with these people on a personal level, there's a lot you can really learn about them and the real fascinating things about their particular country. The guides just have so much personality. People have a certain feeling in their heads about North Koreans or about people who come from an authoritarian state, but they're very personable. They're very sarcastic. And particularly for the book, they really worked hard for us because we would need to go to every hotel, eventually explain what we were doing. So even though we had pre-approval, it doesn't really mean anything in a country like North Korea because everything changes all the time. And I had a bottle of Jamison whiskey with me the whole time thinking that, Uh okay, I'm going to need to buy off one of these hotel managers <laughs> to, to take photos at the hotel. But the guides just worked so hard for us. So they didn't need to do that. And mm. they were really very persuasive about what our project was about. And I'm so grateful for them because we did get a lot of extra access because of them. But they have never been outside North Korea. They probably never will. And it's quite unfortunate that you go there and you make these relationships with people and you're not able to pursue that friendship. There's so many people we kind of meet overseas where WeChat or Facebook. Yep. In North Korea, it's very isolated. I think it's difficult to talk about because there's so many hard situations mm. in North Korea. But I think for the people that we interact with in Pyongyang, who are certainly quite privileged, I do feel you at least have the opportunity to make a person-to-person connection with them, however different our countries are and whatever the relationship is. It is nice to feel that people are people and there are ways to ignore the more controversial things to strike balances between how people really are. And maybe an example is that we were talking to one of the guides, you know, the, the RE about dating, I think she was dating someone at the time, we were kind of teasing, mm-hmm. just trying to find out more information. And she was saying that when she dates people, it's really important to know what someone's blood type is like. Interesting.
1: Like, what
0: are you talking about? What do you know what someone's blood type is like? She's like, I want to know if I'm going to have a child with that person, I need to know immediately if our blood types are going to match. I mean, it's quite perverse, but I think it's an interesting kind of tidbit of how that country is very different. But then she's a young girl who's dating people and she's thinking about raising a family. To some extent, you can block out the politics and really engage people personally. But we'll have to kind of caveat that there's a lot of people in North Korea that don't have that opportunity, obviously. But for my limited experience, someone like her was just a really interesting person that I had the chance to spend time with.
1: Amazing. And I think it's really special to have something like this, right? This book, it's only one very small glimpse into only a few hotels in a very small part of a very large country, but that's going to be more than what a lot of people would ever know or have access to from outside of North Korea and perhaps three and the others Why they wanted to work so hard is also, I'm sure they're proud of many aspects of their country as well. And it's nice to have someone like yourself to want to share that story because, like you say, they probably won't have that chance and that opportunity Mm. to share it themselves. So they see you as a bridge to help everyone else understand a little bit of their country. It's great. Your book is still available. Is that correct?
0: Uh, not really. Yeah, I don't have many left. I'd like to do another run, but um, I'm just maybe a little too busy at the moment. It's all about volume. I did have a lot of good press when I first launched the book that I probably wouldn't have this time around. I'd really like to make a book about Havana in Cuba because I okay. feel there's some similarities with Pyongyang and there's some interesting architecture there. But Yeah, probably 500 emails away from making that happen.
1: Well, for everyone listening, if you do want a copy of the book, I suggest you email James (laughs) and submit your interest. And perhaps if we get enough emails, he will reconsider doing a print run. But for now, you can follow on Instagram and check out the website. There's some great photos of the book. It's been really great to chat with you tonight.
0: Awesome. Yeah, great. Thank you, Lucy. Yeah. Cheers.
1: Don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.